We're here today with Michael Girdley, and we're going to be talking about the book Traction. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to Action Path, hosted by Steve Cunningham. Well, let's uh, start off at the beginning. Tell us a little about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so these days I'm an entrepreneur and investor here in San Antonio. So you do a few different things. We were talking about that before we started. Just elaborate a little bit on the your background and what you're doing these days. Yeah. Well, I, I tell people I'm really in the the third phase of my career or the third the third iteration of it. You know, when I first graduated from college with a, a computer science degree, I went to go work for other people. So I worked in other people's companies. And then I became an entrepreneur and I worked in my own company, but I was only working on one company. And then a few years ago, I made a transition to where now I interface and own all or part of multiple businesses. So I'm working on different things all the time and jumping in where companies need me, but generally having things where other people are running them and I'm just helping out. Sure. And so we, we talked briefly before we started about, you know, why this book Traction was such a good tool for you. Maybe we'll, let's, let's start there and then we'll dive back into the, the beginnings and your first job and all of that good stuff. Yeah, right on. Well, I mean, I think to give you context, as a business person, I have some stuff I'm really good at. I have some stuff I'm really bad at. Um, managing a lot of details and doing things that are very repetitive, uh, doing things in a very standardized way. I'm bad at all those things. I'm great at creativity. The first thing that I do, the first iteration of anything, I'm awesome at it. You'll never see a 1.0 better than me, but the 2.0 I'm terrible at. And so, you know, as I started to interface with the different companies and, you know, we, we owned one business and then I started another one and then I got involved in a third one. And I started to realize as I was going to board meetings for them or I was helping them out, uh, I had no consistency whatsoever in how these businesses were being operated, what language they were using, how I knew they, where they were going, how, how well they were going. I had no idea with any of that. And I got exposed to this book Traction, which provides a whole system to basically standardize that. So I went back to all the companies I'm involved in and said, do it this way, which is pretty fun. And how'd that go? I think one of the things I think I do well is I try to, to try to get people to buy into ideas. And a lot of the ways I do that, whether they're a CEO of a company I'm involved in or a business partner is to say, let's try it. Right. And I, I think this will work and I've seen it work well in other places. And if it doesn't work out well, like we'll figure something else out. So, you know, I got, I think I got people to buy into it, not by convincing them that they were getting married to this, this system, but by saying, Hey, let's try it and see how it goes. And, and oh, by the way, I've tried it these other three places and it worked really well. Awesome. And I think now you said all of your companies are using it. So it went well, which we'll get into. Um, let's talk a little bit about where you grew up and we'll get to that, that first job out of, out of college. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up here in San Antonio uh, in a internal suburb called Olmos Park. And uh, I think part of your background is your family started a, a fireworks company. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. The company, we are fourth generation now. My grandfather returned back from the war, um, World War II. There's been a lot of war since then, but <laughs> the World War II. And uh, moved down here um to live in San Antonio from, I think they came from Kansas. All of this is fuzzy. I mentioned that part about bad memory. This is exactly right. You want to talk about the future, I'll talk about the future all day. <laughs> but I can't remember what I had for breakfast. Um, so they came down here and decided to get into the fireworks business. And so my grandfather moved down here and uh, eventually incorporated. 
and um, started out as Cannon Fireworks. That's my grandmother's maiden name, which is a cool name, but they got rid of that. Um, and when, when they moved to San Antonio, they adopted the name Alamo. Alamo Fireworks is what they, they took on. And uh, then my dad did it, and then I got involved in the early 2000s, and then my brother got involved uh, in, the, uh, in the later part of that first decade. And did you work in that business growing up? Yeah, I did. Uh, that was the first, the first job I had was working in a warehouse in the middle of the Texas summer. Uh, and I, it's a lot of work. And I was a 14 year old kid working out there and moving boxes around back then a 14 year old kid could work in an explosives warehouse. You're not allowed <laughs> to anymore, but it's not a big deal. Um, my grandfather, he was crazy. Back in the 80s, he would walk through a warehouse full of explosives with a lit cigarette. And uh, nothing ever happened to it, but it was funny. I'd be like, I don't know if that's a good idea. But he's my grandfather, so whatever. But, um, you know, it was that kind of that kind of OSHA wasn't such a big deal back in 1988. So, And for those of you listening who don't have never been to Texas in the middle of the summer, it is ridiculously hot. And also what I didn't know before I moved here was that it's also humid. Yep. So it's ridiculously hot regular temperature wise. And then you add on a huge layer of humidity and it's like you're swimming yeah. when you go outside in the summer. Um, so you went to college, you got a computer science degree. Tell us what happened next. Yeah. Well, I always love uh, computers. They always came easy to me. I love, I love technology. It's so fun. And uh, yeah, so I went went back east. I wanted to get as far away from San Antonio as possible. Then it was definitely a different town than it is now. Uh, everybody I knew that was ambitious got out of here as quickly as possible. And I think San Antonio has changed since then. I think younger people want to stay here. Uh, but then it was like get away as possible. And so after college, um, I decided to move out to California because I wanted to work in uh, in technology. So that was the place to go, San Francisco. So. Before San Francisco was San Francisco, I lived in San Francisco, if that makes sense. <laughs> Back then, all the tech was still down south towards Palo Alto and San Jose, but that has flipped since then. And what was your first job there? Uh, I got a job, actually, believe it or not, I couldn't get a tech job in San Francisco. I had a computer science degree, highly capable, I think, and I there were no good jobs in San Francisco because all the companies were further south. And so I would commute from San Francisco to a place called Redwood City, uh, which is down where Oracle is. It's like two thirds of the way to Palo Alto. So I worked as um, a support engineer for a company called RSA, um, which is a cryptography company. And that was fun. That's fun. And so that was your, f your first job. And I think after that, you struck out on your own. Let's talk a little bit about that journey. What, what made you want to do that? But then also what made you think that you could do that? Yeah. I, you know, in my twenties, I think I was somebody who, um, always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't, I, I don't think there was something, there was something blocking me. I think I was really scared. And that, that's the one thing, if I could go back and talk to me in my twenties, I'd be like, be less scared. You know, who gives a crap what people think? Um, but I was so scared of failure that I think I had a hard time about it, but I got really bored of the Bay area. And, uh, my dad said, Hey, I want to retire at some point. And this is about 15 years ago. So why don't you move back to San Antonio? Also, I need some grandkids, so work on that too. <laughs> so my wife, uh, my wife to be and I decided to move back here. Uh, and he had me come work at the fireworks company with him and he slowly migrated out. So I became entrepreneurial the old fashioned way. I inherited it. 
<laughs> in a in a decidedly non-technical industry. Yeah. So you started off in computer science. You wanted to do something in that career. You're obviously doing that now and investing in tech companies. Mm-hmm. Talk a, to us a little bit about the journey through the fireworks company and how did how did you decide to get out of that business as well? Yeah, well, so fireworks is a really hard business, really hard business. And, you know, I when I've gotten into other things, you know, like I I describe uh I describe fireworks as business business on hard mode, basically. Like so the dynamics of that business, and you can see it around here, we're we're open seasonally. Uh the majority of our revenue shows up just in a few days of the year. The rest of the time we're getting ready for those few days. Um, we are lucky compared to other fireworks retailers, which is we have two sales seasons in South Texas. One is in New Year's and the other one is for the 4th of July. Other people, like if you're in Minnesota or Missouri, you're a retailer there, you get one season and it's the 4th of July. You got to make all your money for the year in about a week and a half. It's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, as I've gotten involved in other stuff, like the, the code up business here and some of the other things that are going on, Realco, the fact that people pay us every month and sometimes every week <laughs> is like crazy. Like it just makes, it makes things so much, you know, it's almost like easy mode in, in comparison. Right. Um, and then I think, you know, it, it's given me now an opportunity to have something really unique, which is very few tech people have run real businesses, like hard businesses where you're dealing with hourly employees, you're dealing with highly regulated stuff, dealing with people who are going to rob you. Like we hired a new employee at the the fireworks company the other day, and he's like, "You mean we have to worry about these people stealing from us?" I was like, "Dude, everyone here, like, not the employees, but everybody we're dealing with is trying to rip us off. Like, you got to remember that. That's just the way this works. Like, that's the real life. And so many tech people are insulated from that because because of all the different stuff that happens in tech. And so, so you're transitioning out of the the fireworks company. That's, and I know you're doing. You eventually we're going to get to what you're doing with CodeUp and, and RealCo. But how did you make that transition out of the fireworks company back into the thing that you orig- originally wanted to do, which was technology? I think as you get older, you start to realize some of the assumptions that people make about life and also the assumptions you've made about yourself may be false, right? So, you know, in terms of the assumptions about myself, like I've realized so much that I want to live in a creative space. Like I am an awesome person, or I think I am. I find enjoyment from the creation part of things, right? How do you how do you conjure something from nothing? That is a creative activity for me. How do you solve like a really hard problem that other people can't solve or aren't interested in or give up on? Like that's really fun. How do you make sure that the train shows up every day on time at the exact same time, clean? Totally boring. I'm not interested in that. So so I think the realization was that like there are there are certain people that are good at making sure the trains run on time. I'm not one of those. But man, figuring out which direction the train should go and pushing it the first time, like I'm a great person for that. And then I think all—I think also one of the fundamental assumptions that people have about life and business in particular is if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I have to run my own company. I have to be the person doing it or because nobody else can do it better than me. And as I've gotten older, you know, you've heard me talk about these things I'm good at and bad at. I'm really bad at some stuff, really bad at it. And I'm an idiot if I ask myself to keep doing that stuff all the time. And so for for Alamo, for CodeUp, for Realco, for all these things that I'm involved in, there are people that can do things much better than me. And the best thing I can do for the universe and for me is to figure out how to put them in that seat rather than ask myself to do it. And it's interesting because most of my CEO buddies, they all run their own companies and they think I'm an alien. 
which is funny. I think I'm an alien too, but uh, it's, it's That's a, a story really, for another day. <laughs> it's really, well, yeah, it's a really interesting dichotomy, you know, to, to go to the CEO group and talk about that. But I do, I do want to come back to the, that, that juncture of like when you decided to leave the fireworks company, like theoretically you could have stayed in that role forever. The company's still operating. Uh, uh, Cause I see it every time I, I drive out of town. Um, what what made you make the leap into which I assume is another leap of faith into I'm going to go do something else now on my mm-hmm. own? Yeah, I think it really the epiphany was the day I realized I had spent the past month at the fireworks company and I had not seen anything that I hadn't seen before. I knew every answer. Like I would, I got to the point where I had seen so many things so often. When people came up, I'd be like, they'd say three words, and I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to think about something else while they finish explaining this because I already know what the answer is. And if you want to live in a creative space, that's the time to make a move on. And and for me, you know, the culmination of all those ideas I talked about before was saying, okay, well, the important thing is for the business to continue, take care of the employees, take care of the customers, protect the legacy, hopefully continue to profit. And how do I think about a transition plan to make a difference in terms of who should be running things day to day? And so that's what started. Started. And so when you finally left, which I imagine you had to have a what I assume might be a difficult conversation with, with your father or the family. Uh, what did you tell them you were doing? Uh, I said that I want to, I want to be able to also work on other things that are interesting. Other, other interesting things, not letting them know that you no longer found the family business interesting. Uh, I mean, the family business has a lot of interesting aspects to it for sure. And I, I'm still involved in it. So there are, there are huge aspects of it that don't kind of fulfill that creative juices of where I want to live, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, so like there's the, there's the 30% of the job that's great. There's the 70% that, you know, somebody else can maybe do a little better. So, so, so take us back to day one post Alamo fireworks. What are you doing? It was gradual. It wasn't like, hey, see you later. Peace. Um, and I'm still involved in like all these companies I'm in, I go spend time with all of them. But yeah, so I started spending a lot of time at Geekdom. Uh, Geekdom is probably 90% of the reason why I still live in San Antonio. Um, you know, I was able to go hang out there and find my tribe of people. Like, I think that's the actual genius. It's not that there's tech people at Geekdom. It's that it's a place where all the like-minded entrepreneurial risk-taking kind of people started to hang out. And I knew I could find a higher percentage of them. And actually everything that I've gotten involved in since then is involved through the geekdom people. Let's take a quick aside and let the people uh, know who are not listening from San Antonio know what geekdom is. Yeah. Uh, so geekdom is a, it ostensibly is a co-working space, but it really is a Trojan horse to change the culture of San Antonio from inside out. And it was put together by Graham Weston, who was one of the co-founders of Rackspace, with the idea of if I put all the entrepreneurs together in a building, then magical things will happen. And I think for me, I feel like that's what, it worked. It worked. Yeah. And so was that where you found your next thing? Was was that Geekdom? Yeah. So um, the next business we got started was CodeUp, um, which is a coding bootcamp, now a coding bootcamp on steroids. And uh, I was the first CEO of that. Then I've managed to to fire myself from that too, so that's good. And and now now one of my business partners is the is the CEO Jason. And uh, so you had the idea for for 
coding boot camp at the time like those are everywhere now at the time were you starting something new uh, or were you taking a model that was successful elsewhere i read an article about some guys in seattle that were doing it and there were a couple aspects of it that i liked so we copied those and then did it better so we were the seventh coding boot camp in the u.s so, so back in the early days of the the coding boot camps for sure 2013 yeah, yeah 2013 and I think we've executed really well as a company by sticking to fundamentals. And we copied people and we've done some things better. Um, we're still the only coding bootcamp that offers 100% tuition refund if you don't get a job. So basically the idea there is our job is not to give you education, our job is to change your life. And so we've been very strict about having that kind of brand guarantee to say like, we're gonna, we're gonna do what we promise you or we're gonna put our money where our mouth is. And that's actually a big, that's a concept that we adopted before I found EOS and Traction, but it is a big component of what Traction's all about. Cool, we'll get, we'll get back to that idea in a little bit. And I know there's some interesting stories that came out of uh, Code Open. I don't know if you wanna talk about this one, but there was a story about uh, you guys putting up some billboards that got some, some extra, maybe you wanna say negative attention that turned out to be a boon for business. You want to tell that story? Oh yeah. Um, it's kind of lame. I don't know. There's this class of people who create controversy in order to front to further themselves. So a guy like that, um, decided to stir up some controversy because we had a cool billboard and we still, we still have them where we put the face of a student, we'd put their former career and scratch out the, the description of their former career. So like I'd say like barista with scratch through and then it put software developer under it. So it was pretty clear that we had taken a real person from a barista to a software developer. Anyway, some guy got unhappy. He's married to a hairstylist and the hairstylist saw a billboard that said hairstylist scratch through it. And so he decided to create some fake controversy and then like an online petition and stuff. It was, it was the lamest thing in history. Like, so. We weren't attacking hairstylists. If you want to be a hairstylist, <laughs> fantastic. But we are great if you are a hairstylist and you want to be a software developer, like call code up. So, yeah, and, and I know that you guys are literally changing lives, and from a hairstylist to a software developer mm -hmm. is pretty good upgrade. Yeah, and that's you know, the fireworks company is cool because like. At its core, we're not really selling fireworks. We're actually making, if you ask people about their fireworks experience, they say, uh, oh, you remember that time I did this with this or that time we shot fireworks at the lake or that time. Like the, the thing we realized we're not in the fireworks business, we're actually in the memory business. So they have a brand guarantee too for the fireworks company, which is either you have 100% happy memories from your experience buying and shooting fireworks or email us and we make it right. Right. And, and we realized that brand guarantee was so powerful. And the same thing with code up, right? It's just like, okay, we either change your life or we don't take your money. That's just the way it works. And like, that's made such a huge difference in terms of validating that code up is a legit thing. Cause that, that was one of the challenges early on. Is this for real? Uh, and even my friends would tell me that I'm like, dude, you know me, like, of course it's for real <laughs> anyway. But like that brand guarantee of all of these companies makes such a huge difference in terms of promising that you're going to deliver to the customer what they want. So you're we're at the point now where you're you're out of the fireworks company, you've got code up running, you fire yourself from code up eventually and you're starting some other things. And at some point you realize like we said in the beginning that you've got all these companies they don't have a common language and you need something in order to tie 
everything together. So let's talk about how you found traction and then let's jump into the ideas. So yeah, so I, I'm, um, I'm a big believer in peer groups for entrepreneurs. So I'm, I'm part of a group here called Vistage. Um, and there's other ones also, EO, uh, YPO, Tab and stuff like that. I like Vistage the most because it's the most hardcore. It's most expensive, most professional, most demanding. Um, so I mean, I, if I'm going to spend my time doing it, I want to be around uh, really, I was about to say a bad word, but really great people really hard driving people. So, and that's what my group's full of. Like everybody's dedicated because we're spending real money and real time to be there. And, you know, the cool thing about that is I get exposed to a lot of ideas from other CEOs that I wouldn't normally see just being on my own. And one of those was EOS and and a couple of the other member companies of my group um, run EOS and Traction. What was the, so you pick up the book, you read it. What was the, the thing that stood out to you the most that would be useful for you. There's a section in it, um, in the book, and it's like on page 221. That's how much time I spent with this book. Um, and, and it goes in and it's like, and it almost sounds like an infomercial. And it's like, have you heard these things from your employees? Like, I don't know what my job is. I don't know where the company is heading. Like, I'm not really sure, you know, what we're going to, where we're going to be three years from now. I'm not really sure if this is our business or not. And, and I realized, and, and one of the things I do for all my companies is I go in for the leader of that company every year, once or twice, and I sit down and I interview all the employees in a confidential manner. And I say, how are things going? Tell me about confidentially, wh- how are you doing? How's the leadership doing? How's the company doing? And, and I realized that having done that over a couple different years, I was hearing those things from people. I'm not really sure what my job is. I'm not really sure where we're going. I'm not really sure how we're winning. I'm not really sure what our noble cause is to be better. And for me, the eye-opening thing was putting those two things together, which is I had all this data from the employees saying, I'm confused. I feel rudderless. I feel leaderless. And at the same time, like I'm reading those statements in the book. It was almost like the employees at some of these companies had written them. Yeah. And so that was that was the turning point for you where you said, well, at, at the very least, we need to try this. Yes. In some of those companies. Yeah. So- Walk me through how you approached the first leader, uh, introduced the concept, and let's jump into some of those ideas. Yeah, so CodeUp was the first one to deploy it. Um, and I'm actually in a cool cool situation now where different companies, like what I learned from one using it versus the other one using the system, um, I can go and leverage it. So there's one company who didn't really work as hard as the other ones to deploy it, but they did early on. Like they tried really hard at the beginning and saw a lot of progress and then 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 slowed on it. And I went and told that leader, I was like, oh yeah. He's like, he was like, where where am I in uh, EOS deployment compared to everybody else? I was like, oh, you're in last place. And like three weeks later, like everything had changed. Um, but the first company that that bought into this was uh, CodeUp. And that is, um, it's about a 20 person company at this point and, you know, has a couple of floors in a building here downtown and pushing through a couple hundred students here. It's a nice business, changing people's lives. So, but they were the first ones to do it. And the, the telling thing that we saw once we applied the principles here in terms of making sure the right team members were in the right seats, measured in the right way, was transformational. So before traction, CodeUp's placement percentage was, I would say, pretty good. We were getting 80-something percent of the people jobs within a certain period of time, within about six months, which which is acceptable, but not great. 
And, and we made some transformations to the company. And now a year later, the last four cohorts have been a hundred percent placed and some are getting job offers before they graduate. So like, we're having to figure out like, well, how do we prioritize job offers for these people, which is like exactly what you want if you're in the job getting business, which code up is for people. But just by changing how we're measuring and who's working on stuff has been transformational just for that organization. So that makes it, when you see those kind of results, it makes it really easy for me to go back to company number two and say, let me tell you how well this is working over there. You feel this frustration? Let me, <laughs> let me heal your pain, heal your pain. Read this book. It's $11 on Amazon. So so uh, usually with these books and these interviews, what we do is we dive into like one specific idea. But the the idea of something like traction is that you do the whole thing, and that's yeah. really the power in it. So can you give us just a quick overview of what traction is and the parts of your business that it touches? Sure. Yeah. So traction, the way I describe it to people is like business paint by numbers. So like here's your here's your worksheets. Fill this out and. Basically, there's three different worksheets that you use to run the whole business. And there's uh, the first one is this one called an accountability chart. An accountability chart is like an org chart, but it's different. And what it is, it's a map with a very specific structure that's hierarchical that says who's going to own what, right? You, you own sales. Okay, how do we measure sales that way? You, you own marketing. This is how we do that. And all of that comes together to give you a map in terms of who owns what. And that way, everybody in the organization has a clear understanding of who's responsible for each individual thing. And then the second unique thing that they have is in that accountability chart, it insists that there's two people at the top and they're stacked. There's a person who's the visionary, who's typically the business founder and CEO. And then there's a number two, right? So if you think about Apple, you have Steve Jobs, Tim Cook is the world's greatest integrator. It's why he was an amazing integrator which is what they call the CEO position. They don't call it CEO, they call it integrator. He's the world's greatest integrator, but he's not so good of a CEO. I think everybody can agree that about Apple. Um, but the integrator's job is to be totally inwardly focused in terms of making all of those different functional areas of the business work well together, while the visionary is doing visionary type things and thinking three years down the road. So that number one is the accountability chart, and that's the first of the three components. As you're deploying this at, at CodeUp, uh, walk us through, because I, I know some other people who have implemented traction, and some people are an obvious visionary. Some people are an obvious implementer. Sometimes you need one person to take on both roles because that's just where the company's at. Uh, how did you find out who is who inside of CodeUp? Yeah. So um, in tandem with this, uh, there's a couple different um, personality trait systems um, that that I've learned to like. Um, the one I use the most is called Culture Index. Uh, it's a paid service, and it's basically a disk-esque kind of thing. If you use disk, disk, it's like that, but I think more nuanced in terms of how to fit people for specific roles. It's, it's really cool because it gives you a graph. Uh, if people take this assessment, it takes about 15 minutes, and it gives you a graph to, to basically give you a shorthand to think about how an individual is going to to respond to situations or what their disposition is or how they're going to be motivated. And so if you go look at specific roles inside of an EOS, it's like the perfect complement for traction, is you can think about individual roles. You want to have specific types of people in them. So CodeUp is a great example that the person we have doing placement right now, um, he has an amazingly competitive nature to him. And this person, this personality, they love scoreboard. They love to win. They love competition. And so if you can give them 
a measurable endpoint, like that motivates the heck out of them. Um, I would be bad in his job. And, you know, my graph shows that because I'm a natural contrarian who can't remember squat. And also I decide, um, I decide what the winning condition is in any competition. So, so anyway, like to figure out who's the right person in the right spot, that's the complementary tool that I use to figure out who's the right person. Cause there's a shorthand to get very quickly to understand what makes someone tick. Talk to me a little bit about how do you get an organization that otherwise might not be so excited about implementing a system like this? I think that most of the people who are going to be listening to this podcast are are business people. and they'll, So this is, like you said, it's a paint by numbers. It's here's how you do everything inside of your business. And I think the power in these things is that most people don't have a system. Mm-hmm. So what, maybe we talk a little bit about the power of systems. So everybody does have a system. It just may be a sucky system. That's the that's, that's reality. If, you, if your business is making revenue, you have a system. Um, but yeah, like the, the power of systems, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, it, you're kind of asking me like about the benefits of breathing. I'm just like, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And it's, you know, early on in a company's existence, you can get by with lots of ad hoc stuff and you can get by with everybody being a hero. Um, you know, the, there's this idea that as you get to certain sizes in business, certain there's certain inflection points that you reach right so there's this inflection point from zero to one dollar to actually make your first sale there's another inflection point at a million when you need to go from being just a hero to actually being a hero and a leader of a team there is another inflection point somewhere around 10 or 12 million where you actually have to build another layer of management in and then i haven't hit this yet in any of my businesses but around 100 million there's another one where you have to start building another layer of management um, at each one of those, like you have to have more process orientation, more rules orientation, more specificity and rules in order to make that stuff work. Um, and and that's where you see so many businesses stall at each one of those inflection points is because they won't make the change in commitment from an organizational standpoint to actually get past those blockade points. So maybe that's a good place to start. Where in that life cycle is something like traction just absolutely necessary? So like for our venture fund, um, we have super early companies doing it. And and the genius of Traction is, we haven't talked about the second document, but there's a one page, it's basically a one page front and back strategic plan. And the genius of it is, is it makes you plant a flag to say, here's where we're going to be 10 years from now. Here's how we're going to get there. Here's where we're going to be. If we want to achieve this 10 year goal, here's how we're going to achieve the three. We have to achieve this in three years. If we want to achieve the three-year goal, we have to look like this in one year, and then we have to look like this this quarter. And the idea being that um, that's applicable for any organization, right? If you want to eventually climb Everest, you have to figure out, okay, here's how I'm going to get halfway up. Here's how I'm going to get a quarter of the way up. Here's how I'm going to get 100 yards away. And so we actually have even tiny two-person companies filling out and completing that strategic plan to encapsulate that whole vision of here's how we're going to be you know, a giant software company someday. Um, you know, traction does have upper limits. Like there's businesses that once you're a certain size, this is, this system is missing things that you need to have. And that's where some of the other ones out there, like the Rockefeller habits that are more comprehensive will work for your $150 million year company and stuff like that. But for smaller businesses all the way down to just one dude with a truck, like it's great. So talk to me a little bit about, you've got an early stage company. They maybe don't even know where they want to go. Um, is this something that you advise that would change over time? 
this this document saying that or does the 10 year goal once you decide that's it like that's where you're going it's a living document and they call it the vto which is a vision traction organizer um other systems call it like a one-page strategic plan i don't think they call it that because it's it's trademarked by the other system but anyway no like it's meant to be a living document like the accountability chart is a living document whenever you know i talked about that gives you a map on who owns what an organization the vto is meant to change as well so i was with one of my companies yesterday and we looked at the 10-year plan and they're like I was, we realized that the math didn't work anymore. They had they had a certain number of customers, revenue generating a certain amount, generating a total. And then we realized that their assumption on that was wrong from three months before. So we totally changed it. It's still a big, hairy goal. and But it's now we just made it change to reflect our current thinking. So it's a living document that changes all the time. Got it. And if you had to pick out one tool from Traction, you can only pick... One tool, yep, not two. Which one would it be and why? Yeah, so uh, as part of Traction, there's this meeting cadence that happens. So you have an annual meeting, you have a quarterly meeting, and then you have a weekly meeting. And those are run in a very defined process. You know, it's like, okay, you want a McDonald's hamburger? This is how you make it, right? Same thing for business stuff. Like, And so they've optimized down how the weekly meeting happens, and it's called a level 10 meeting. And the level 10 means we're going to, this is a 10 out of 10 meeting every week. They've defined exactly how the flow of that happens. You get a certain amount of time to do this, do this, do this. And then the majority of the meeting is actually spent on something the staff loves, um, which is a specific process you use to solve problems. So the staff brings what are called issues or problems to to the meeting. And you as a group identify what that is. And then you have a discussion on it. And then you solve it. And then somebody gets something to follow up from that. And it's like, do, do, do exactly the way this is. Um, and so that level 10 meeting, if you had to pick one thing, you just start running your staff meeting like that. And it's transformative. And for me, it makes it easy because if I want to know what exactly is going on with the company, I just go to that 90 minute meeting and I sit there and I observe what's going on. And so that, that's a once a week meeting for 90 minutes. Um, do you have any pushback from teams that they're spending that much time in a, in a weekly meeting? Initially people would be like, man, this is a lot of meeting. And then we would point out all the other meetings that it had replaced. So this becomes the one meeting to end all meetings yeah. in your company. And the rest of the week you get to go off and do all the stuff you need to do. Yes. And then, so I think it's, you know, Graham has a really good quote about what people want to be as like a key member on a winning team on an inspiring mission. And I'm paraphrasing exactly what that is, but like, for you to be a successful key member of a team, you need support from the organization to unblock stuff for you. And that's where that issue processing like makes a world of difference. If you can unblock organizational stuff for them, the morale just instantly goes up, right? It's just the nature of being part of a high-performing organization. People are gonna be happier because they're high-performing. So that I've seen after the first couple of meetings, like morale just goes way up because people feel successful. So they're getting their things that they've been struggling with for weeks or months and does this system take away a lot of those challenges for people yeah so i think what's interesting is there's in any business like there's those imminent hair on fire big our big problem type things like things that get attention from senior executive management but then in the body of the organization there's all like these little weird like just little tiny cancers that come up doop 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 
And what this does is it gives a forum where those get cut out. And you just see see time and time again. And I've, and I've been in those meetings where we'll solve a problem and I'll walk out of the meeting and everybody will be like, okay, great meeting. And I'll be like, we just made $30,000 in that meeting. That was a $30,000 meeting. So, you know, all of that, like, it just becomes that compounding process of creating a healthier organization just by taking, not letting little problems that normally would just sit in somebody's desk and ruin culture, right? Little problems are what ruins culture. And just taking those and fixing them, like ding, ding, ding. Okay, hey, the offices are too dirty. Okay, why is that? Like, let's solve that problem, move on. And it makes such a huge difference. Let's move on now to the results section. I know you already talked about the results that CodeUp has generated. Uh, maybe recap those again. And then let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the results that your other companies have produced by implementing traction. Yeah. For CodeUp, for example, the placement rates, which is the business we're in, have skyrocketed. Um, you know, so much so that we've gone from, say, 80%. I'm just ballparking on what that is, but up to 100% where we have employers lining up to try to hire grads. There, are, I, I have buddies who run other companies and they say, Hey, uh, how do I, how do I get a code up ground? I was like, show up early, dude. Like, that's all I got for you. And so we have, we had an employer come in, uh, and show up on the second week and offer about two thirds of the class a job. The, the course is 18 weeks long. They showed up, they showed up 10% in. It was insane. Yeah. Like, Hey, you guys can all come work here. So it's unbelievable in that, in that ability. And that makes uh, your hundred percent money back guarantee pretty easy to stick by when you're, when you're tracking at a hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, totally. Another company, um, that I'm involved in, um, basically when we acquired it last summer was decreasing in revenue about, about 3% per month. Um, they've turned around since then and started to grow 4% month over month. Um, and so they're, they're big believers in the whole traction process and, uh, have really bought into it, which is really great. Um, you know, for uh, for another company, we were having a really hard time getting some construction projects done because um, we just didn't have accountability on who owned them. And so that has caused that company to really up its revenue in terms of getting that stuff done. So you've seen this applied across a bunch of different companies, different industries. I want to ask you a maybe a different type of question. Have you ever seen traction make things worse? I have not. No. But also, like, my my opinion is skewed because it it's good for me, <laughs> for sure. I know that for sure. But I haven't really seen a situation in which it's, which it's made things worse for people yet. Yeah, so maybe not so much do they feel worse. Have you seen them produce poor results after implementing? No, I think it's kind of like um, I have not seen it. And here's, here's my logic for why. The system is... I, I can't change, you know, there's very little I've changed in it. There's a couple of things I'm like, that's stupid. Let's change that. But I only did that very cautiously. But it's kind of like that idea. You've seen studies where they um, run studies with people and they make them write down how much they eat, but don't tell them to change anything and they lose weight. Yep. You know, it's kind of just that first idea that, you know, we talked before about you have systems in your business. You just may not be mindful of those systems. Just by picking a system is like 80% of the battle. And that's what we tell, like, in our venture fund, we tell people, like, look, don't not have a hiring system. Don't not have a planning system. I don't care which one it is. Just pick one, right? 
If you're going to do financials, just do gap. It's easy peasy, easy peasy. Run, run the financials, go from there. So I think that's 80% of the battle with all of this stuff is just actually picking a system and going with it. Um, and so whether it's this scaling up any of the other half dozen that are out there, like that's the first step. I have this concept of orbiting around the truth. Mm-hmm. That's some ideas. If you can imagine like a, a, a solar system and the, the sun is the truth. There are some ideas that are like Mercury and very close to the truth. And there's some ideas that are, lot, that are like Pluto. It seems to me, and, I, and I've talked to a lot of people who do traction. Some people do Rockefeller habits mm-hmm. that having a system like this, that just the fundamental truth of you're very close to getting better results in your business. If you just take that step. And mm-hmm. like you said, it doesn't matter if it's traction or Rockefeller habits, uh, as long as you're doing it and doing the paint pie numbers, people have figured these things out over long periods of time. And these are, this is the logical outcome yeah. of those things. So that being said, why do some people not do it? Why, why isn't everybody following one of these systems? Yeah. I, um, I can speak from personal experience. Like I'm, I talked about my weaknesses. One of them is being pretty hard headed sometimes. And, uh, you know, I can, I can recall back one of my buddies who's been doing us for a while and, you know, I was very dismissive. It's like, oh, that system thing, you know? And I think, I think there's a right time in life to sign up for some of this stuff. And, you know, someday you'll be ready. Someday you won't. So whatever, make yourself, knock yourself out. I'd love, I love competing with businesses, not running a system. <laughs> so please continue. So we'll, we'll, we'll maybe not release this episode or make sure it's blocked from all of your competitors Look, around the world. I think anybody that's going to listen to a podcast about books and ideas is probably already, you know, I, I, they're not, they're, they're not going to be ignorant. So kudos, be kudos that, to your listeners. They're going to be on, on that, that track already. Was there, was there anything surprising to you as you implemented these across your companies? I was surprised at how effective that issue processing is. Like, you know, you don't realize how dysfunctional your meetings are until you have a framework like this to think in. And I think a great example is, you know, you're in that meeting where you start, you're planning and talking about different stuff. And some guy's talking about a a next year problem. The lady next to you is talking about a next week problem. Some other guy's talking about a, a, a last year problem. And the cool thing about the traction is and, and the traction way of looking at it is it makes you think temporarily in an appropriate scheme. So what I mean by that is when it's time to think about 10 years from now, you think about 10 years from now. When it's time to think about next week, you think about next week. Um, when it's time to think about a year from now, you think about a year from now. And everybody talks about it in the same way. And it makes it so much powerful, so powerful. And I think that's what, as I look back on meetings that are hugely dysfunctional, and I've been in some um, recently where I'm just like, oh my God, can't take this anymore. Um, it's because people are not all over the place. The issues are not defined. They're talking about different different timescales. Like all of that just is what breaks down and kills meetings. When you have this format and make you follow these rules, it's so cool, but at the same time, so depressing when you realize how much time you wasted like in all those really bad meetings before. Adopting a system like this requires a lot of courage. Um, you have to have the courage to face that you or people that work with you now may not be the right fit for the company. You have to face courage that you may have to say no to certain opportunities because they're not part of who you are. You may have to have the courage to step up and deliver and really back up what you're promising to deliver for people, right? We talked about that brand guarantee idea 
the brand guarantee idea. Um, CodeUp, for example, like there was an early part of CodeUp's existence where the staff came and said, we want to get rid of the brand guarantee. And I said, now how about we get rid of you guys not doing your jobs, right? Like go get some people some jobs. That's the way to fix this, not to lower our standards. So all of that requires a lot of courage. And there's a, there's a cool blog post, and it's in the Traction book also too, where they list the 10 commandments of Traction. And like number six is don't be a weenie, <laughs> right? Like you're going to have to make some hard decisions and all this. And I think that may be part of why people don't, don't sign up for it is requires some courage. Let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's an important point. And I was going to ask you earlier, but I didn't. Uh, you implemented this brand guarantee when 15% of your customers were not getting jobs. How did, how did you and the company have the courage to say, we're going to do this, even though theoretically you're going to be losing revenue immediately by implementing it? And then how did you work through getting everybody on board? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think what's part of what's made CodeUp work from the beginning is we're playing a long game. And my founder, co-founders and I said, would we rather be Harvard or rather be University of Phoenix? And we're not Harvard yet, but we will be someday. And, and part of that is having faith that we're willing to sacrifice near-term pain in order to achieve long-term greatness. And so we built into the model, hey, like early on as we learn how to do this and push ourselves, um, we need to have the ability to withstand giving people back all or some other money um, if we fail them. And then we do better the next time. And the idea being that, look, if we want to be Harvard someday, like we got to start down that trajectory if we're going to get there. So, you know, it was a calculated risk, but also part of a long-term game to play, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. The, you know, that principle of that you learn most of your best lessons through failure. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like if I'm reading this right, that kind of game of setting up this brand guarantee when you don't really have it figured out yet, almost guarantees that you're going to learn what you need to learn in order to make that a reality. It just is a matter of how long it'll take you, but eventually you'll figure out how to get that thing to be true. Yep. And uh, that seems to me to be, and I, and I, I don't know that it, it's a huge part of the model, but it seems to me to be a really powerful idea yeah. that it'll erase all of the problems that you would face getting to that point. That's a, that's a really big insight, I think. I counted up last year, and my reading is different than other people's reading, but, you know, I, I went through about 50 bucks last year. And, you know, this is in the top five, most impactful by far. Yeah. So. What, were the, what were the other four uh, in the top five, if you can recall? Yeah, there's a book called The Outsiders, not the outsiders with, you know, pony boy and stuff, but, um, which, which my son is reading. He's like, you're reading an outsiders too. I was like, this one's different. It's about business, <laughs> but it basically it's a very nuanced, uh, study of, um, the successful conglomerate rollups of businesses in the seventies, eighties and nineties. You're thinking about rolling up software companies here in the future. Uh, and you're studying what happened in the past, around, would you say the 1970s? Yeah, so that book um, is a summary and basically a business school kind of analysis of why certain conglomerates and roll-ups of companies worked really well and why other ones didn't. And, and it does that from the lens of looking at these kind of heroic CEOs who 
outperformed the market like crazy. So like there's the guys behind Teradyne, Cap Cities, um, and they all deployed these kind of Warren Buffett-esque models of how they were going to create a you know conglomerate of things. And they shared really common ideas to make those successful. So in my head right now, there's this idea that, I don't know if you've read Principles by Ray Dalio, mm-hmm. where he's got this idea. It was okay. Three stars. Would read again. <laughs> he's got, he has this idea where everything that's ever going to happen has happened in some form or another already. And yeah. somebody has figured things out. And you're, you're reaching back into the past to figure out how something works for the future. So my question is, how do you go hunt down ideas that helps you work on what the future? Where do you go look into in the past to help for the future? My, my venture capital fund partners and I talk about the number one thing that makes for a successful investor and entrepreneur is like a super high level of curiosity. So like um, there's a balance between actually wanting to solve around the things that are interesting to me, like what challenges do I have now? Like I'll go solve for those. Um, and at the same time, like balancing that with, Hey, like I'll go let my curiosity take me wherever I want to go. Cause a lot of times it's either one of those two sources can really give you inspiration to change things. So I don't know if I'm ducking your question or not, but that's kind of how I think about it. Thanks so much for being with me here today. There's so much to talk about. I think we'll have you on again. Uh, if people want to find out more about who you are and what you do, where should they go? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at M Girdley. So M is a Michael Girdley, my last name. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Action Path is a production of Geekdom Media in association with Game Day Media Enterprises. Executive producers are Lorenzo Gomez III, John Garcia, Jason Barrera, and Michael Largent. If you want access to summaries and takeaways from hundreds of business books, check out Steve's company, Read It For Me, at readitfor.me. That's readitfor.me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.